Lord, we do praise you this morning. We do desire that you be glorified in all things. And we uh, desire to commit those that are traveling, still traveling over the weekend, keep them safe, particularly the Newfelds as they will be coming. Also pray for Sharon and her ministry. We desire that she would be used in a mighty way and that you would make her, her ministry fruitful and bless her in her last year's that you have for her, and as many days as you have for her, we would uh, commit them to you. This morning, we desire to be encouraged from your word as we all experience, in some cases, just a little bit of suffering, but all experience to some extent that we may be encouraged in your word to keep your perspective on all things. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we want to get into the book of Romans again, obviously. You're not surprised, right? What else have we done in the last three years, right? Well, I thought I'd start to kind of uh, remind you of a couple things from last time. And one of the things that I brought out were just the things that occur in nature and just so happens. I don't know how many of you are subscribers of World Magazine. I know Connie is. In fact, I'm very, very impressed with this news magazine. Uh, it's far better than Newsweek or any of the other national ones. It always has not only news items, but it always has a biblical perspective on current events, basically. And it so happens that there's two articles on tragic events. In fact, the title of this one, Twist of Grace, because there's a mixture. Obviously, it's a tragic event. That they six years ago there was a tornado that ripped through the Midwest, and it says November 17 marks the sixth anniversary of a devastating tornado outbreak in the Midwest. At least 73 tornadoes peppered the region on that Sunday in 2013. The strongest one, categorized as an EF4, I guess that's a big one, touched down in that location there. In less than an hour, the tornado destroyed more than 600 homes, damaged hundreds more. More than 100 people suffered injuries, and three people died. And the article is mainly about two families that went through it, and it just kind of traced how it affected them. And it talks a lot about the recovery in six years. And this one family... Matt Whitworth also struggled, and here's the kind of the twists of grace. This is the positive. Matt Whitworth also struggled with this reversal uh, roles. He saw himself as someone who had worked hard to get a good education and a good job so he could give of his money and resources. And it says, quotation, I never really saw myself as a recipient. I tried to be very self-sufficient. It's the end of the quote. Whitworth laughs and adds, when a tornado happens, you're not self-sufficient. You have to rely on other people. So that's kind of the, the positive and not only what he learned from it, but others were not so fortunate. He says, for some, the trauma and stress of the tornado led to divorce or premature deaths because they didn't have a biblical perspective. And the last little quote that I want to read here today, Davidson, see this is another, the second family, says a group from the community still meet to plan ahead for other potential disasters. 
they've designated who will organize volunteers, donations, lodging, and food in the event of another community crisis. They've selected a location for the first post-disaster meeting. They've also printed yard signs and banners to place at community checkpoints to give people information about how to help and how to get help next time something happens. However, as Davidson acknowledged, you can never be fully prepared. It's kind of the nature of natural disasters and things that can't predict in the natural realm. And in uh, our study of Romans, we've been looking a little bit at the creation. In fact, I've focused more on scientific insights. We spent the last two entire weeks, basically, looking at that, that aspect. We're going to pick up in verse 22 where it talks about creation groaning. And this is just another example of how the creation groans. And we may not get to 27. There's six verses there. But there are basically a few things that we can touch on in those passages that give us more support for suffering. We mentioned that all of us suffer at some time, some more than others. Some have lifelong suffering. Some have very traumatic experiences. But all of us, to some extent, groan ourselves. In fact, that's what verse 23 says because we know we live in a fallen world. So did the Romans in the first century, and that's who Paul writes to. Those of you that went on the Israel trip, remember that site, Temple of Jupiter on the right, and even on the edge of the slide on the right is another temple. So one of them... I'm trying to get perspective. Get a perspective. Well, you can get a perspective from the fencing here. Well, is it a three for five? It's probably a four footer, four foot fencing. I don't see any people in that. Money, it's huge. Hmm? It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. Pretty big. Obviously, the Roman Forum remains from the first century. And in fact, the Temple of Jupiter dates to like 500 BC. So things still remain good engineers in those days. In our outline, we are in chapter 8, dealing with the power for sanctification. This is the context. Even though we talked a lot about science, the context of that is in the midst of sanctification and the closer context, not only do we have power over sin and sonship of sanctification, chapter 8, 12 through 17, but the part that we're in, it's a long paragraph. You can include all the way to verse 30, 18 to 30, or you can divide it up into a couple of parts. Suffering, but the main theme is suffering in sanctification. Now, you might ask, why does he bring in the natural realm, which deals with science, obviously? And that's why I spent some time, because nobody really devotes that much insight into that passage. And I thought I'd bring out those points. In fact, someday I'll probably present that same thing to the creation group. But the whole context deals with suffering. And the main emphasis and reason he brings in the creation is there's a future hope in suffering that's going to involve the entire universe. So he goes back and traces the roots. He's given us kind of the big picture. And that's what we did when we looked at the passage. Where does not only suffering come from, 
But where do all of the issues that we observe in the fallen creation, where do they stem from? And they stem from the same event. So this is his commentary from the big picture perspective on the fall of mankind or Genesis chapter 3. That's where not only suffering comes from, but I tried to develop the idea in science, the second law of thermodynamics, the law of decay, the law of disintegration, the law that is observed in every science. So we have a future hope because the second law, in fact, I should have titled that whole portion, and when I do do it for creation science, I'm going to call it the repeal of the second law of thermodynamics. Because no one in the secular world or in the scientific community has a thought in terms of that law. It is so universally established and has been observed in the science community, they assume that it's eternal. But in fact, Romans 8 tells us that it'll be repealed. We saw that. So future suffering, we saw the antithesis to suffering is this future glory, which is the release from suffering and release of not only the created world. In fact, the natural realm anticipates that glory. That's the thrust of 19 through 21 that we looked at. And now we ended last time, and I'm going to review a little bit of it. Uh, Went through it quickly, verses 22 through 23. That waiting is an agonizing waiting. There's a groaning involved. In fact, the theme of groaning kind of picks up in verses 22, and it's going to be picked up even later in verse 26, is it, or 27. So, antithesis to suffering, verse 18, the anticipation of glory, 1921, agonizing waiting, 22 through 23, my attempt to alliterate there. And just to remind you, the main thrust, the main principles relating to sanctification, I'm still developing the context here, Number 21, this passage tells us that suffering is God's main tool for sanctification. That's why it's in this portion, and that's why Paul devotes this number of verses to this concept of suffering, because it's not only inevitable, we all experience it, but from God's perspective, we need to view it. This is the one of the means that God uses to not only draw us to himself, but to purify us, to sanctify us, to conform us to his image. And then 22, glorification is the end product. So that's another major theme of these verses, is not only suffering, but really a future release from suffering. And it's an ultimate release, and the word that Paul uses is glory or glorification. That's when we will be free entirely of suffering. In fact, only those that know Jesus Christ, obviously. So, verse 22, we have the groaning of creation. So, he's still talking about the created world. I won't review all of the scientific insights that we drew, but a couple of things in the passage. For we know, in other words, this is, in fact, the word is oida, the word that sometimes is used for intuitive knowledge. It's not experiential. There's a different Greek word for we know that the whole creation groans. In other words, you can, I mean, you sense it. It's intuitive. You don't have to study it. You can observe it. It it just comes naturally. We know that the whole creation 
the entire natural realm. That's what scientists study. In other words, that's the main focus of the whole in scientific endeavor is the creation. And he's already used that same Greek word for creation earlier, and now we have it again in verse 22. And I gave you the example. In fact, I introduced our topic this morning. A tornado is an example. Uh, you see, there's something amiss in the created realm. You see these occurrences like tornadoes that are extremely destructive. You can't stop them. All you can do is try to find shelter. And sometimes things happen that are beyond our control and people lose their lives as a result. Gave you the example of the Alaska earthquake. You can sense the groaning and the uh, something as a result of the fall of mankind. And lots of destruction, as illustrated. How'd you like to own that car? <laughs> how you gonna get? How you gonna get that car home? Or volcanoes? Another example, particularly if you're in the path of it. And remember, I reminded us, those of you that went to Israel, we visited an, an entire area that was destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the first century. Same time frame as those that lived at Rome in the city of Rome that Paul writes the letter. We visited two communities or two cities, Pompeii, the famous one, and Herculeum, another one that has been recently excavated, both of them, amazingly preserved by the ash, but tragic for the people that lived there because those that did not escape obviously died in the incident. The groaning of creation Closer to home for Junko, her home nation here. That's the tsunami that destroyed. In fact, you can see the waters and the tsunami. And if you look up the event, you can see the devastation wiped out an entire village. Do you remember how many people died in that event? I think hundreds, right? Or thousands? Yeah. And everything was destroyed. Another example of the creation groaning. And we see this. And even in not-so-spectacular events, that's why Paul says, we know this, we can sense it, we can observe it, we experience it as we just live everyday life. It's unexpected. Oftentimes, catch catches people unawares. And then verse 22, it suffers using the same description, same idea as what we experience as human beings. The creation groans and suffers. Actually, this is a different word. It's not the same word as we've looked at. This one suffers the pains of childbirth. In fact, he uses a word that's relating to that experience that women go through when they bear children. Suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So the creation, along with our suffering, I think he's bringing us in when he says together there, until now, until the first century when Paul is writing, and remember he is talking about Genesis 3, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and since then, these things have happened over time, over history. He doesn't mention the Genesis flood that destroyed everything in one cataclysmic judgment that God brought, but that would be another example in all of the historical events. 
Paul is reflecting all of these things together until the first century, and they stopped in the first century, right? Nope, until now, and since it's inspired, we could apply it until the day that we live as well, as we still still see these tragic events. In fact, the ones that I gave you were all within our some of our lifetimes. Okay, so verse 22, the groaning of the creation, and then verse 23, likewise, now he's bringing it back to us, we groan similarly. And not only can we observe it outside of our experience, but we we know that this experience is something that we experience ourselves. So verse 23, and not only this, not only the natural realm, but we are part of the natural realm. And when he says not only this, what he he's saying is everything that he talked about the creation, I think he's bringing in here. Not only do we groan, in fact, that's what he's going to get into here, but we also are eagerly waiting. And he's going to use the same word that he used earlier to describe us. And not only are we affected, obviously, by the fall. In fact, we think more in terms of humanity and mankind being affected. But not only that, but I think he also includes The creation anticipates this glory. And so he's saying not only does the creation anticipate this glory, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Now he's transitioning to this future glory. So just as he's just described the creation, not only does the creation experience some of these things, but there's an analogy that he tries to draw in which we, in a very real way, experience as well. But we also ourselves. And then what does he mean by having the first fruits of the Spirit? Does that mean that we anticipate the Spirit becoming greater? It's not a reference to the Spirit. Spirit is immutable and doesn't change. But our experience... I think is, is greater. So the first fruits, the background, you probably remember Old Testament background goes all the way back to the law. And the feast of first fruits came basically out of the experience of the Israelites, primarily in the land, even though in Exodus, Moses or the Lord gives Moses insight into this feast. It anticipates when they would be in the land. They were to bring the first of the crops. So the crops that ripened at the very beginning of a harvest, they were to bring them not only in thankfulness to God for producing a year of productivity, but it was also like a tithe. It was like giving the first fruits, giving it back to God, not only in thankfulness, but also in anticipation of the full harvest that would come. So it was a celebration of lots of labor, lots of effort, lots of time, obviously spent developing the crops, and now you have the first fruits, and they were to be brought. Now, in the book of Exodus, one of the passages also talks about giving the first son in in a similar way as the first fruits. I don't think I have it quoted there, but in Exodus 22, it talks about the first son, 
the first also of the animals, the firstborn of a lamb and any of the other animals that were kept. That's in chapter Exodus 22. But let's look up 23. Would somebody look that one up? Or there's the 22, uh, 22, 29. Somebody who's got that one. Karen is thumbing through her. You want 16, verses 16 and 19? Yep, you got it. Exodus 23, 16, mm-hmm. and then skip to 19, and then while you're there. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of the ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors in the field. Then verse 19 says, The first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God, you should not boil a young goat in its mother's It's just going on with more instructions at the end there, but basically it gives instruction for the first fruits. Now remember, at this point in their history, they were not in the land, but he's laying out the law, essentially, for living in the land. And you can read some passages in Deuteronomy that kind of echo the same thing, just as they're beginning to get into the land. So that was the intent of that feast. Did you want the 22? Yeah, you got it? it? Says, you shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your son you, you should go. give to me. Yeah, and then keep reading animals as well. Well, it said, yeah, that's what I said, it said, right? Oh, I see. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day, you shall give it to me. So that's the concept of first fruits. And what Paul is doing is taking that Jewish imagery in the passage that we have and basically saying that we have the first fruits, in other words, the early part of the harvest, you might think in terms of God's harvest, in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In this context, he's already developed that idea, and it should tell us this is just the first fruits. In the millennial kingdom... After the second coming, after the rapture, during that period of time, there's going to be a greater ministry to us in the Holy Spirit. And this is an encouragement in terms of suffering, because we anticipate that's what we anticipate in the future as well. Is it just because um, that's God's plan, or because so often living here on this will quench them? No, I think that's part of God's plan. I think even if you never quench the Holy Spirit, there's a greater outpouring of the Spirit that is anticipated in the in the in the millennial kingdom. Not a greater Holy Spirit or not a, a greater portion of the Spirit, but an experience that the Holy Spirit's going to pour out that is greater than what we experience here and now. How do you give something to God? That <laughs> yeah, we we can't add to God. The question is, how do you give back to God? Well, he calls us and I think it's a recognition that everything belongs to him anyway and we're just acknowledging that we are utterly and totally dependent on him and we're giving back to him, recognizing our our need. It's not that God needs anything because he is self-existent, no needs, but it's for our benefit and it's an expression of our, our faith. Yeah, Hannah, you know, waited all those years to have a child, and now she gives it back. Mm-hmm. 
That's an expression of thankfulness and faith. Worship that worship. Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Again, he waited all those years and have a son. Right. And remember, he was the special firstborn, yeah. mm-hmm. not the literal... It is miraculous, too. Right. And miraculous birth. That age, aren't supposed to get pregnant. Right. Exactly. And we won't look up 1 Corinthians 15. You can jot it down. But interestingly, when it speaks of first fruits, it speaks of Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter on what? Do you remember that passage? The great passage on what? Well, resurrection. Resurrection. The victory over death. Yes. And in the passage, it describes Jesus Christ as the first fruits of those coming back. coming back from the dead. Telling us that there's going to be other future resurrections that will include us. In fact, the passage goes on all the way to verse 23 and even beyond that. In that context, it talks about the part that we will experience in resurrection. Christ being the first fruits. And I believe what he experienced, we will experience similarly, obviously as finite as we are, whereas Jesus is is infinite because he's God. So Christ is the uh, first fruits, implying there's more resurrections to come. Now, this passage is not stressing Christ's resurrection, but it is stressing that ultimate time, it'll be at the resurrection when this glory will be experienced. So here we have a future ministry of the Holy Spirit anticipated that is even greater than the experience that we experience here and now. Then verse 23 goes on, even we ourselves... The even we, going back to the creation groaning, we also, even we, ourselves groan within ourselves. It's the same stem, uh, grown within ourselves, the same stem as what we had in the other one, but the other one has a together with, in other words, the creation groans together, but we also groan within ourselves same word, stem, same idea. This anticipating, this agony, this pain that we go through. So when you suffer, when you have an affliction, or when you have mental stress, whatever suffering it takes the form, or emotionally, you're, you're depressed, you're suffering, he's using the same imagery of groaning. In other words, there's pain involved, there's suffering involved. We suffer as well within ourselves. And the emphasis is internal, because even if it's physical, it causes a groaning, a, a sense of pain that uh, we we experience internally. And this groaning, we saw in verse 22, the creation groans. And uh, I use the illustration of how you can see it. That's why we know, because we can observe it, natural disasters. Now here we have believers and we have another passage. Somebody look up 2 Corinthians 5.4 because it's parallel or at least the same concept. Who wants to do that one? Lou, you got 2 Corinthians 5.4. Go ahead. For, for we who are in this tent groan. Now this, this body, in other words, he's using the analogy of our body like a 
like a tent. The wind will blow it down. The, the weather will let the cold in. Go ahead. Being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that morality may be swallowed up by life. Okay. He's anticipating that we're not going to have to live in this tent anymore that is temporary, that is fragile, that allows the elements to come in, gives small amount of protection. But he uses the word groaning there. And also, in the context, he's anticipating the same thing that we have in Romans 8, where we will be clothed fully in a future time, clothed in a resurrection body. Okay, so right now we have physical weakness and sickness. That's the idea of the groaning. And interestingly, in verse 26, the Holy Spirit, same word, also groans. Not suffering, though. He's using the same word to kind of bring home this concept. The Holy Spirit is groaning in a different way, but groaning all the same. We'll get there in a little while here. The groaning is in intercession. You what? Today. Today. Oh, there's an optimist in the crowd. So we wait, waiting eagerly. There's the same word that we've seen several times already. We've seen it two times. The creation eagerly waiting, and now we as believers, we not only groan. You see, he's drawing kind of from what he's already said about the creation and talking about us. Waiting eagerly, and another word that he's using a second time, our adoption. Adoption as sons, we talked a lot about that in the prior passage. Same word, the concept of adoption. He's bringing back some of the whole areas. Verse 19, we saw we eagerly await, and now he comes back, we're eagerly awaiting. In fact, what does 19 say? Let me read it to you. For the anxious, well, that's the creation. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly, same word, for the revealing of the sons of God. And then it's going to be used in 25. But we, if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And in the midst of suffering, this is what we anticipate eagerly wait. I want this to be gone. I, I want to get through this. I want it to be over. This is painful. This is suffering. So 19 and 25, so it's used three times in the passage. And way back in 815, we have the word adoption as sons. Remember we talked about that. For you have not received a spirit of slavery. So he's weaving all of these elements back together here. But... You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Here in verse 15, it deals with the present experience of sonship and our present crying out to the Father in our everyday experience. But in uh, in 8.23, we are anticipating waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. The entire sonship, there's an aspect of it that is yet future. And that's what our hope is in, and that's what we anticipate. And what this whole passage is looking forward to. So adoptions as son. Then we have the last little phrase there, the redemption 
of our body. And just as there are aspects of this adoption as sons that are yet future, in this context, the concept, the redemption of our body is future. In other words, a completed redemption that involves essentially the end product of what Paul is talking about here, that glory aspect. So I refer to verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's what he's talking about here. This future revelation includes the total and complete redemption of the body. And what he's referring to here in this context is resurrection. At the resurrection, which will take place at the rapture, we will be removed from these old sinful bodies and given resurrection bodies, a new body. Now, last time we also talked about what is the resurrection body like? And I used the resurrection of Jesus Christ and referred to some of the appearances that give us little hints concerning the nature of that resurrection body. And if you remember, I'll go through this quickly because we looked at it last week. But essentially, when we're talking about this transformed body that is very, very different from the present bodies that we experience now, I asked a series of questions in terms of just thinking in terms of science, the radical change that will take place amongst not only the human race, but this passage indicates changes in the physical realm as well. But in terms of a resurrection body, one of the questions I asked in relationship to the second law of thermodynamics, what effect does the second law of thermodynamics have upon a resurrection body? And the only thing that we have to go by is that of Jesus Christ. And we'd have to say that based on what we know about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there is no impact or the second law has no effect on a resurrection body. Similarly, we could go down and make a long list of different areas of science. For example, Newton's law of motion. Do they have any impact on a resurrection body? Well, we notice that Christ could move about totally unhindered. He seems to appear in one place and then the next moment he's somewhere else. He seems to move from uh, Judea, and then uh, we have a resurrection appearance in Galilee, and there's no mention of any travel. So the Newton's laws of motion have no effect on a resurrection body. Similarly, the laws of gravitation, the vivid example that we used was Acts chapter 1, where we have the record of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the description there describes the fact that Gravity had no effect on the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we talked some more about other areas. What is What are the molecular properties of a resurrection body? Well, we don't know, but we would assume that they are radically different than the properties that uh, exist today in our bodies. What's the chemical composition? If you want to include a little bit of chemistry here. And again, we don't know, but it would appear that a resurrection body in terms of chemical composition, if in fact that is even applicable, is radically different than our experience now. 
And I threw in uh, optic properties because when Jesus appeared to the Emmaus travelers, I don't know if something happened to their eyes and or simply his physical appearance, but either way, they were not able to recognize him as Jesus Christ. In fact, they didn't recognize him until they were in a darkened room with lanterns late in the evening when he opened their eyes and they were able to see. So something's going on there in terms of optics. And the point being, his resurrection body has the ability apparently to appear in a form that is different. And yet on that other occasion with uh, Thomas, he appeared with the wounds in his hands and in his side. Similarly, biological cell properties. What are the biological cell properties? We don't know whether there are even cells at all in a resurrection body. Point I'm making, these are radical changes, same with the nature of immortality. Radical changes that are different from what we experience now. That is what the phrase, the redemption of our body, is referring to. It's talking about that future time when we will receive our resurrection bodies. Now, beginning in verse 24 and 25, I call this the application of faith because I think that's the major thrust of what we have here. In the midst of suffering, we need to focus not on our present experience, not what we can see here and now, as the text will indicate, but we need to have the perspective that Paul is giving to us in this passage. We need to look ahead and realize that ultimately the suffering will end. Ultimately, we will even totally be removed from these weak and frail bodies. And uh, we do that by faith because everything around us and our experience and the pain that we're suffering seems to sometimes overwhelm us. But we need to be reminded that we apply what Paul is talking about by trusting, and that's the thrust beginning in 824. So he says, and I'm going to go through this quickly, most of what he says here is pretty pretty clear. There's no problem understanding. It's a matter of simply applying it. So in verse 24, for in hope we have been saved. Now, that's a little bit of a problem because everywhere that we looked in scripture, we recognize that Salvation is by faith, and this is the only passage that refers to hope being related to salvation. But salvation by grace, through faith, we are saved. So what is he talking about here? He's not talking about receiving salvation for the first time here, but he's tying it in this context, and in fact, it's in the past tense referring to what we've already experienced, and Based on that, we look forward in hope for the completion. In this context, he's talking about the consummation of this salvation, the end product, the redemption of our body, awaiting our adoption as sons that are that is still in the future. So I think the best way to look at in hope that there is a relationship between salvation and hope. This salvation that we have received in the past is characterized by things that we still anticipate in the future. So we could say that salvation is characterized by this hope. 
Hope is not the means by which we enter into the salvation. That's by faith based on God's grace. But there is an element of anticipation of the completion of the salvation. I think that's what's in view here. And then the next little part of it, but hope that is seen is not hope. That's kind of axiomatic. And in fact, what Paul is just explaining here is the essence of what hope is all about. And hope that is seen, in other words, if you are seeing the fulfillment, then uh, that's not really hope because hope anticipates something that is in the future that is unseen. But hope that is seen is not hope, not biblical hope. So he's essentially explaining the obvious here. This is what I would describe as axiomatic. Then the last part of verse 24, simply a question that reinforces what he just said in this axiomatic statement. For who hopes for what he already sees? In other words, it's just obvious that if you've already received what you're anticipating, you no longer hope for it because you have it. So again, he's explaining the obvious. And in essence, what he's talking about in the whole passage of verse 24, this whole idea of hope is assurance of future promise. That's the heart of the meaning of the word in the Bible. Now we need to distinguish hope in scripture is associated with assurance and confidence. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it's described as an anchor, something that gives assurance and surety. It's not in uh, the way that we think of in our culture. When we say hope, oftentimes it's a wish. In other words, this is how I hope things turn out or how I wish that they will turn out. And it doesn't necessarily have this idea of assurance, but biblical hope is associated with assurance. So hope is assurance of the future promise. It's actually another way of describing faith and trust, but with the added element of assurance because we believe what God has said and what he's promised. And then in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, Kind of picking up from verse 24, we don't see the outcome. We don't see a resurrection body apart from Christ's. And even that we don't see, we read about it and we try to piece together some of the details of the text, but we don't see it. We don't see Christ now. So if we hope for what we do not see, then the last part, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. And the idea is this should be the focus in the midst of suffering. We persevere, we endure, we wait. In fact, we eagerly wait. And here we have the same word that we've already seen before. In fact, we've seen it a couple of times of the creation, and we see it also in relationship to the believer. So we saw it in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly, same word, for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is waiting for the same event. So the creation is waiting. And then verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We just discussed that just a moment ago. 
Same word. So it occurs three times in this context, emphasizing that this is the perspective that uh, God desires. This is the perspective that Paul is giving this future anticipation, future waiting, and it should be an encouragement in terms of persevering and waiting through the pain, regardless of how severe it may be, because we have the assurance of this hope. So it is the motivation to endure in the midst of suffering. So that moves us to the next section here, and I'm going to go over this just briefly, and we'll come back to it and look at it in more detail next week. But along with what he's already encouraged in terms of more resources that we have to be able to cope with difficulties, with suffering, with problems in our experience, not only this perspective and not only this future look, and the awareness that God is going to transform everything, including the entire universe. But verse 26 and 27 tells us of the present support of the Holy Spirit. So we have a future hope in suffering, verses 18 through 25, and verses 26 and 27, a present support of the Holy Spirit. And what is that support? And the heart of it is the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. Let's take a look at the verses quickly. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. Now, I'm going to go into more detail on what he's describing here. I think it's general, our weakness. I think it includes any kind of weakness, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional, and the whole spectrum of weakness in the same way. In other words, in the same way that we have this hope of glory, this new perspective, so also in the same way, added to that, we have the Holy Spirit helping us, another added resource that God has provided for us. So the Spirit helps our weakness, and the the verb helps in the Greek text is in the present tense giving us the idea that this is a continuous activity of the Holy Spirit, a moment-by-moment, day-by-day experience of helping us. It's a continuous action and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the weakness is weakness over all areas. And then the next part, for we do not know how to pray. Oftentimes we are so overwhelmed with our suffering that we don't have a clear perspective. But even when things are going well, we don't always necessarily know how to pray. We don't know ultimately what God's will is in particular specific instances. So we don't know how to pray as we should. So there's the need, a general need. I think it's a broad statement here, a general need for prayer. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's a tremendous concept. We need to develop it further and devote more time to it. But uh, think on it, and we'll come back to this as well. Spirit intercedes for us. And again, the interceding here is in the present tense, so it's continuous. And then the last part, with groanings too deep for words. I want to go into a little bit detail because I think there's some 
distorting of what we have in this passage that we need to kind of clarify, but we'll wait for next week. Verse 27, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is. The he, I think, refers to the father. The father searches the hearts and he knows what the mind of the spirit is. So the father knows what the spirit is praying. This gives us added assurance and encouragement that basically God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit are both involved in the midst of any suffering that we are experiencing. Then the last part there, because he, now the he here refers back to the Spirit, the close antecedent, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So we can be assured that when we we pray according to the will of God, we have the promise. We'll look at the passage that promises that, that God will answer. And if God will answer our prayers according to his will, what might you expect in terms of the Holy Spirit? In other words, the Holy Spirit will always get an answer to prayer because the Holy Spirit is, in fact, God. So we have intercession according to the will of God. Well, that gets us to the end of our time. Closing thought. In suffering, we have all of God's resources that we need to face that suffering. Not only a future perspective on what God is ultimately going to do, the consummation of all things, the resurrection of our body, not only the perspective that God is going to remove whatever suffering that we have. But this last passage is an added resource of even the prayers of the Holy Spirit himself. Let's close in a word of prayer.